now listening to the second episode of the Stir the Pop podcast featuring your host, Marshall Green. I appreciate everyone that's tuned in. We got a big show for you today. I think you guys are really going to like it. We got some really cool guests coming on. I don't want to make you guys wait any longer. So without further ado, let's get it. opportunity to interview and talk with J.B. on Hamlet, the junior guard from the University of North Texas. Hamlet was named the 2019-2020 Conference USA Player of the Year. He was also a first-team all-conference selection while being the conference's newcomer of the year. In his first season at the University of North Texas, Hamlet led the Mean Green to their first regular season conference championship in 10 years. During league play, Hamlet led the conference in assists per game, assist to turnover ratio, and a free throw percentage of almost 90%. He finished conference play fourth in scoring at nearly 18 points per game, shooting 52% from the field and roughly 42% from beyond the arc. Hamlet has an amazing story and I can't wait for you guys to hear it, so let's get to it. Appreciate you coming on, man. I really do. Right now, just what's going on in your life with this coronavirus, everything going on, and how is that affecting you, and what's what's a day in the life right now at JV on Hamlet? Man, day in the life with JV on Hamlet, man, just getting up and uh, just working out, uh, just trying to stay healthy, uh, spending a lot of time with my family. You know, this is, the most, this is the most time I ever had, like, spending with my family since I've been, like, playing basketball. So really just trying to just stay healthy, really just working out. So to stick on the coronavirus topic, when you guys got the news at the Conference USA tournament that the season would be ultimately canceled, what was what was the overall team feeling like and the feeling for you at first? It was all kind of sad, man, because we worked so hard just to achieve one big goal, you know, and it's winning the conference and going to the big dance. But, uh, you know, uh, as we had to come in, we had to, we had to just think about it like, man, like, this coronavirus really killing people. So after we just realized that, we just got over it because it's uh, way bigger than basketball. So we was like, man, we just we all just going to come back and do it again next year. For sure. But I, I agree it is bigger than basketball. But for a guy like you in specific who had a chance to play kind of a, on a stage where you and the, also the team at UNT had never really played on and possible getting, possibly getting to go dancing at the March Madness tournament, and you possibly to show and other teammates on your team to show to pro scouts that you guys were legit and could possibly end up being there one day. What was what was that like? I mean, I feel like, man, God do everything for a reason. You know, uh, just say for instance, if uh, we did go to the tournament and we did put on a show and they had me going, let's say, late first round or late or, or second round, going to the second round, uh, and we could have came back. I could have came back from my senior season and, uh, end up going uh, lottery, you know. Uh, so I kind of look at things like that. I try to like look at it as a positive way. Me and my teammates, you know, because like everything do happen for a reason. I feel like it's a better and bigger reason. Like when all this shit is done. So, 
Take me all where it started. When did you start playing basketball, and what was your childhood like growing up? I started playing basketball at two. Uh, my dad put a ball in my hands at two. Uh, ever since then, I just fell in love with the game. You know, uh, going to daycare. My daycare, people telling my dad, because that's all I used to do. Uh, I ain't never used to play with the other kids. I always just used to shoot hoops on that go. And, and uh, my childhood, uh, the lady that used to... Uh, Keep me. Her name was Miss Walker, and uh, she told my dad and them like they really need to put me into uh, basketball. And ever since then, it's just you know um, that's what I just loved. My childhood, uh, and I uh, like seeing my mom and dad struggle. You know, they uh, used to struggle. I was just trying to like get back to them. You know, because uh, where I'm from, like a lot of people really don't make it out, and like you barely make it to see 18. You know, uh, most of my friends just, that I grew up with, they either, you know, in jail, some of them, like, are dead, you know. And uh, I just try to be, like, be the oddball and, like, try, like, to, you know, uh, break curses and, and tell myself I'm going this place and going that place, you know, and uh, that's what I'm doing. Gotcha. That's awesome, man. Was there, like, a moment, like you said, where you were playing basketball or you just knew that that was going to be your way out? Sure, because a lot of people kept telling me, like, I ain't never had, like, a lot of success or, like, a lot, like, uh, publicity, like, uh, but I had always knew, like, going against ranked guys, like, in AAU, I used to always kill, but I never, like, get no offers, and, like, people don't, like, never recognize me, so it's, man, it's really been hard, and it's still hard to this day, because I feel like, like, people still don't recognize me, still don't, like, give me the credit. But I guess they would make me, like, really, like, just grind, just, like, show people and prove people wrong. And like you said, I, I, when I was doing my homework, I was I was trying to look up, you know, your high school stats, and I really I really couldn't find anything. And I saw that you went to junior college your first year out in Motlow State in Tennessee. How did you decide to go there, and what led you to play basketball there? Man, uh, I really didn't even know I was going to Motlow State, bro. Uh, I got an uncle, his name Carlos, uh, he was taking me, because I had no office coming out of high school. He was taking me to different JUCOs and trying to, like, get them to offer me scholarships. And they was like, they were full or they ain't got no room. Or, like, they got somebody that was better than me, this type. And uh, I was about to go D3. This school named Lamar Owen. It's in Memphis. I'm talking about, man, it's in the middle of the hood. It's just, like, in the hood, just in the middle of the hood. And uh, I was about to go there, but I was like, my dad actually got the argument because I ain't signed the papers in because he just wanted me to get in school. He's like, ain't nobody in my family, like, besides my mom and dad really graduated college. Like, all my cousins, they either game banger, robbing, stealing, killing, or they in jail. So it was like, and my dad, he didn't want that for me. So that's why, I like, like, he put a basketball in my hands. And, like, I ended up going to uh, my old high school coach, ended up calling this, my, my model coach tonight, JT Burr, he ended up calling him. He was like, Man, I need the best point guard in Memphis, uh, this and that. And I just ended up signing there late. It was like almost school was ready to get ready to start. It was like two weeks before school started. And Coach Burton, like, he was the first coach that like really gave me a chance. That's crazy because in your first year there, you, you balled out. You were second-team All-American. You led the country in assists at eight and a half a game. And you led your team in scoring with nearly 16 points per game. So I think that decision, yeah. I mean, you made the most of it for sure. And then yeah, that, for sure. 
After one year, you then transferred to Northwest Florida State College. Uh, how did that come about? Well, I had, I had, I had, I had went to uh, Marlo, but I had went to Buffalo. Uh, oh. I ended up getting, uh, I ended up having like a little injury, and I had, I ended up committing to Buffalo because I was like, uh, I was qualified. I had to do to go for two years. I was qualified. Okay. Yeah. So I ended up going there, and uh, the situation it was just too far from home. It didn't work out. Uh, I actually picked Buffalo over North Texas where people don't know. Like I picked them over North Texas and like my decision, like that decision, like really weighed in heavy on me because I felt like I needed to be here. And like when I had, and then I then I transferred to Northwest. I was getting recruited by all these high majors, and uh, but I had already told like Coach Reem and like I was coming here. Like this is where I felt like I need to be. Like my own mom, bro. Like she got mad at me because I ain't even go high major. Like we ain't even talk for like three weeks. That's what I was gonna say. Like, how did you how did you decide on UNT? Because in your lone season at Northwest Florida State College, you like you balled just like you did your first year. You were the number seventeenth ranked junior college player. You were the Panhandle Conference newcomer of the year. You averaged about eighteen points and seven assists a game. So you were, you were balling out. So how did you decide on UNT? Man, just Coach Magnum, man, that was real. I feel like they were real from the start before I even chose Buffalo over them. And uh, he just kept telling me like that he needed me. He felt like I can change the program around and like you know and uh in my heart it just said i need to be here so it's it's, it's how it was like you know getting recruited by high majors it was like when i was young you know like when you're young you want to get recruited by all these high majors but it's really not like how people think it is it's really like a business decision i ain't want to go like and ride and play i ain't want to go play 25 minutes a game i want to play 30 minutes a game you know like, kind of like I a big fish in a small like, pond yeah, 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 and I kind of like, and I want to just change this transition here. You know, I want to make my like make my own mark. I want people saying they want to go to North Texas because of JV and him. You know, and, uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like how I stick out than other guys. You know, I want to set my own trend. I always been a leader. You know, uh, just making the best situations out of all the situations that I ever had. That's 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 super cool, man. Do you have like a favorite game or like a favorite moment from this past season? Man. Winning the championship, man, uh, I still get chill like looking at that game. Uh, and we was down. You were going down like, game. I appreciate it. <laughs> we was down like seven, bro, like three minutes, like four or five minutes left. And uh, just see how hard that we grinded out, man. Like I'm, like, I'm really proud of my team because like, we've been in so much, so many moments where where we ain't really just came out like on top. We, we always come up short. And we were like, nah, like we winning this game. And, you know what I'm saying? I was just that's just been the biggest moment. Like all the accolades, all that don't mean nothing because like without none of my teammates, I wouldn't be able to do it anyway. I just feel like just winning the championship was the biggest, the biggest one. Yeah, and in that game, you had a you had a game high 25 points. For me, my my favorite moment from you on the court this game was or this past season. Was your game-winning floater versus Law Tech at Law Tech? Can you just can you kind of talk about that moment and what that game was like? Man, it was it was a crazy game. Uh, I didn't even have a good game that game. One scoring a lot, one making my teammates better. I was getting frustrated. Man, it was just crazy. Uh, cause the, cause we've been working on it. We've been working on it out of bounds play like all week. Like, yeah, y'all didn't call timeout. Y'all kept going right after they made yeah, their yeah, bucket. Yeah, we was working on it, and they play called go. And, like, man, we just ran go. And I seen, like, I had four or five seconds left on the clock. And I knew I could get down there in three dribbles. I just let the ball. I heard my, I heard Coach Hard say, let it go. So I just let it go. 
Nah, that was that was smooth. And watching your highlights and watching you this year, it seems like that floater that you had is I don't want to say a patented move, but how did you learn that shot and almost perfect it at this point? Yeah, really just having some such. Uh, I don't even like. Well, now I work out on it, but I don't even like. I ain't even like used to work out on it, man. It was just always me playing against older guys as a young. Now I go to the goal, they'll block my shot. So I just started doing that. Like, you know, I just started using the floater because they can't block the floater. And that's a shot that it seems like all guards that are trying to play at the NBA level, almost some that they need to have in their bag. But it's a floater. <laughs> The floater, the floater, some crucial. What was your reaction like from everything that you just told me when you found out you were named the Conference USA Player of the Year? What was that moment like? I was speechless, man. Like I ain't never won an award like that. I always got overlooked on awards like that. When it came down to awards like that, politics usually sit in. And it's just a blessing, you know. Uh, this guy just, you know, just. Uh, just blessing me with that award, but it was—I was just speechless, man. Cause I ain't know my teammates. No, kept saying I was gonna win. I was gonna win. Like it really wasn't on my mind, man. Cause, like all I do is like I just really want to win. Cause like it show you like when you winning, everybody. And I'm the type of guy like I want all my teammates to sign. You know what I'm saying? Sure, that's that's something that you should forever cherish, man. That's that's really cool. So I'm on this podcast. I'm trying to come up with a segment, a new segment. Whenever I have like a basketball player or anyone come on, it's who's your goat, and um, the name kind of explains the topic itself. Uh, so for you, if you're NBA goat, who's your NBA goat? Really, I ain't got no goat, man. I just got like a lot of guys I just watched and I let like like their game. Uh, I know it kind of sounds crazy. I don't even have a favorite player, uh, but I say I love Kyrie Irving. Just the way that like he break guys down, finishing over bigs and. Him, him, for sure. Yeah, no, he's got he's creative with the ball. He can finish left hand, right hand, and the spin. The spin and the English that he has on some of those finger rolls are crazy. Yeah, sure. So, Javion, do you have anything that you want to say? Let the people know what you got going on, what you got planned for next season? Man, just bigger and better things just coming. I ain't going to tell them too much, but bigger and better things coming for me and my teammates. Uh, it's the whole next program. That's awesome, man. Well, Javion, I appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, that that that's really big. I appreciate it. So, uh, hope you guys and your family are staying safe. For sure, man. I appreciate you, man. Nah, no problem, man. Officially less than two weeks away from the start of the NFL draft. In honor of that, every episode until the draft, I want to take an in-depth look at a certain position group and talk about the top five prospects at that position. I'm going to start off at receiver. A lot of people will say this has the potential to be one of the best receiving draft classes since that 2014 draft class where Mike Evans, OBJ, Sammy Watkins, and Brandon Cooks were all drafted in the first round. And Devontae Adams and Jarvis Landry were picked in the second round. That, in my opinion, is the best wide receiver draft class ever. And I can't wait to see what these 2020 receivers can do in the NFL and if they can live up to the hype. 
So to start this thing off, I'll go with my fifth best receiver, and I'm going to go with Michael Pittman Jr. out of USC. The guy's 6'4", 225 pounds, and ran a 4'5", at the NFL Combine. He's an athletic freak. He's got the size that you need to be a dominant outside receiver, and his numbers that he put up his senior year are absolutely incredible. He had 101 catches, 1,275 yards, and 11 TDs. He did this all in 13 games. When I watched videos of Pittman, one thing that really jumped off the screen to me was how hard he ran after he caught the ball. His run after the catch, he's a violent runner. It almost reminded me of, honestly, Brandon Marshall. If you can think back to that far, Brandon Marshall was one of the hardest people to tackle with the ball in his hands. And that's kind of the image that I got when I was watching Pittman. He had strong hands. He would pluck it right out of the air, and he would get upfield quickly. And he's he ran with the ball hard. It seemed like DBs couldn't tackle them by themselves. He ran through arm tackles, and he was a very viable option in the screen game. One thing that I also liked about Pittman was his ability to work back to the ball. He didn't really play with any elite quarterbacks at USC, which I think had a direct impact on his numbers his freshman through junior year. But I think that's also going to help him at the next level. He works really well coming back to the QB. He has a large catch radius, and he can go up and catch a jump ball. A lot of people have compared him to Michael Thomas of the New Orleans Saints. I do like that comparison. I'm not sure he will ever be the player Michael Thomas is, but I think they they have the same play style. They run good routes. They're bigger receivers. They can slide into the slot. They can win at the line of scrimmage versus press. They can run any route on the route tree. They're physical guys. They're fast, but they're not burners. Well, I do think Pittman has a little more speed to his game. They're both not extremely fast athletes. But I think a lot of their play style and route running and strong hands, they're very similar. And that's why I think a good fit for Michael Pittman Jr. would be wherever Tua Tagovailoa goes. Tua reminds me a lot of Drew Brees. He's a very rhythm thrower. He likes to hit his back foot and let it go. Tua, like Brees, relies a lot on timing and trust with his receivers. And the fit with, I think, Michael Pittman Jr. and Tua would be really well. If they could somehow get together in Miami, I think that would almost be an ideal fit. So moving right along, my fourth-rated receiver in this draft class is T. Higgins from Clemson. When you first look at T. Higgins, he just jumps off the screen. He's 6'4", 210 to 215 pounds, a string bean athlete who can just get up and down the field. He's like a baby Randy Moss to me. He can just get behind DBs at will. And when he catches the ball with space, he can make a move and get to the house. He's very creative with the ball in his hands, which gives me the idea and the hope that he can improve upon his, I would say, above average route running right now. But when you look at his total package from his size, his speed, his jumping ability, his ability to adjust to the deep ball, come back to the deep ball, jump, catch it over a receiver, and keep running, he's just a dynamic playmaker and somebody that I think, if added to the right offense, can push them over the top. He's the type of guy that you can put on the outside where a safety now has to worry about him all game long. And he's not some burner that's only five foot ten. 
He's 6'3", 6'4". When you get in the red zone, which is a place that I think he can improve upon, he can be a viable target. If you come into a short yard situation on the goal line where you need to throw a 50-50 jump ball, he's a great option. Some people have been quoted as saying he's the best jump ball 50-50 guy in this class. The guy's just an absolute freak and has every tool necessary to be an elite receiver. This last year at Clemson, his stats were stupid. He had 13 TDs, 59 catches, and 1,167 yards, and an average rate of 19.8 yards per catch. The guy, he stretches the defense. You have to account for him every play. He's a home run hitter. I just think... He's somebody that added and used correctly can make any offense better. And not to mention, he comes from wide receiver U. Clemson has produced some of the best wide receiver prospects in recent memory, and he has the most touchdowns in that school's history. I think that in itself says enough. But if you're still in doubt about T. Higgins, just go to YouTube and search his name and search a highlight clip. I promise you'll believe me when I say this. This guy has all the potential that he needs to be successful and possibly one of the best receivers in this draft class. As we keep moving on my top five wide receivers for the 2020 draft class, the number three ranked receiver I have is Henry Ruggs. Obviously, the first thing you look and think of when you think about Henry Ruggs is that 4-2-8-40 that he ran at the NFL Combine. The guy is an electric athlete. He's the fastest player in this draft, and it's not even close. He's an elite burner. He's got Tyreek Hill-like potential. He may not be as productive as Tyreek Hill, and I think that may have something to do with not being able to play with Patrick Mahomes, but if this guy goes to a quarterback that knows how to stretch the field, watch out. This kid is super special. I saw something on the Twitter the other day. It was like every fourth quarter catch this guy had was a touchdown. He has that ability that every time he touches the ball, he can go to the house. He can go to the house on a slant. He can beat you on a post. He can catch a five-yard comeback, make the corner miss, and beat you up the sideline, and nobody's catching him. He's truly a special athlete, but he does have to work on his route running a little bit. Not to say he's a bad route runner, or even he's a good route runner, but he has the potential with his speed to be an elite route runner. When you when you add that type of speed and quickness to the ability to beat your guy strictly off a route, that's something a DB has nightmares about, and nightmares are what Henry Ruggs caused for DBs at Alabama. In his senior year, he his, his stats aren't as good as some of the other top receivers, but I think that has a lot to do with where he played and him being probably the third receiver on that team. But he had 40 catches for 746 yards and seven touchdowns, which, in my opinion, the most important stat is he had 18.7 yards per catch. The guy is a vertical threat that just like T. Higgins, you have to have a safety watch him all game long or he will beat you deep one time and that one time could cost you the ball game. 
as we keep on going on my top five list, the number two prospect I have for the 2020 class of receivers. This one was tough. I really went back and forth a lot with C.D. Lamb and Jerry Judy. But the second ranked receiver, in my opinion, is C.D. Lamb. I think Lamb really benefited a lot from playing with three really good quarterbacks at, during his time at Oklahoma. But I also think he made those three quarterbacks better and put them in a more comfortable position. There's no doubt that wherever C.D. Lamb goes, he will be the number one receiver on that team. And he won't miss a beat. You can throw that guy out in the middle of the ocean and he'll survive. He can beat man-to-man -man coverage. He can beat press coverage. He can win at the line of scrimmage. He can beat you deep. He's amazing with the ball in his hands, which is something that I thought he really improved upon between his sophomore and junior year. After his sophomore year, I really compared him more so to DeAndre Hopkins, a big catch radius, ran strong routes, could catch the 50-50 balls, really strong hands, could pluck the ball out of the air, which he all did do again in his junior year. But the thing that I think elevated him was his ability to make people miss and extend plays after the catch. There was a couple plays this season where it looked like he was surrounded by at least three or four defensive players. But CeeDee Lamb, more often times than not, made the defense look stupid, broke a couple tackles, and bolted to the end zone. The guy is an all-world talent, and I just can't wait to see where he's going to end up. A place where I would like to see him end up is somewhere where he can be the number one option. And I'm not sure he lasts this long, but I'd like to see him go play with Sam Darnold in New York. Sam Darnold needs someone that he can fall in love with and depend on at receiver. And while I do think Jerry Judy would be a better fit, I think he'll be well gone before that pick. And C.D. Lamb and Sam Darnold would be a great match. They're two young players that can grow together, and it's someone that Sam Darnold has never had before. Robbie Anderson was a good player, but he's not an all-world number one receiver. And that's what C.D. Lamb is. And now, we're down to my number one receiver for the 2020 NFL Draft. And as you guessed it, it's Jerry Judy at Alabama. I almost feel like I can just end it right there. Mic drop, Jerry Judy. If you've watched this kid's tape, he's one of the most technically sound receivers to come out in as long as I can remember. He runs routes like he's been in the NFL for 10 years. I saw this clip on Twitter the other day where he broke down like he was about to run an out route, slid his hand on the back of the DB's back, swiped through, paused a second and bolted the opposite way and so did the DB. Left him in the dust. It was absolutely beautiful. I'd never seen a route like that and I couldn't do anything but say wow. This kid is special and no matter where he goes he's going to produce. I'd like to see him go to New York like I said with C.D. Lamb. I'd like to see one of them go to New York. I don't know which one is going there, but I think that is a perfect spot for either one. Like I said, Sam Darnold needs a number one receiver, and I think that opportunity would be a great spot for both of them. But a place that I also think would be really good for him is Washington. And no, I don't think Washington takes him with the second pick, 
But if you were paying attention, Washington was really big on Amari Cooper this offseason, actually offered him more money than the Cowboys did, but he turned them down and re-signed with Dallas. So they are obviously in the market for adding a big-time receiver. And the closest thing to that in this draft is Jerry Judy. He'd be a great option for Dwayne Haskins. And the way I think they get him is they trade out of that two spot, whether that's with Miami or whatever, fall down back to five possibly if it is with Miami and snag Judy at five. I just think the ability to pair Dwayne Haskins with a player like Jerry Judy would be great for his confidence. Now you got a core of Jerry Judy, PJ McCorn, and my guy Steven Sims. I think that's a young, fun wide receiver core that could really do some damage. And there's nothing like having a great group of guys to throw the ball, throw the ball to that can make plays with the ball in their hands for a young quarterback who's struggling to find his way. So that's my top five receivers for the 2020 NFL Draft. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'd love to hear your reactions. So if you have any, you can message me on Twitter, you can at me on Twitter, or you can DM me on Instagram. show now where we're at the recurring segment the stir of the day or I guess my stir of the day or the pot stir of the day I'm still unsure about what I'm going to name this topic I know last week I said I'd do a Twitter poll or Instagram poll I'll, I'll do that this week so we can get this get this with a name and get it going and hopefully have it something that everyone looks forward to each episode but this week I gotta talk about the New York Giants I'm disappointed the Giants Twitter released Kind of like a like a fantasy draft type picture where it listed quarterbacks, receivers, and running backs. They had five of each. At quarterback, they had Phil Sims, Daniel Jones, Y.A. Tittle, Eli Manning, and Kerry Collins. At receiver, they had Amani Toomer, Victor Cruz, Hakeem Nix, Sterling Shepard, and Plaxico Burris. At running back, they had Tiki Barber, Saquon Barkley, Rodney Hampton, Brandon Jacobs, and Frank Gifford. My first reaction to this list is where the hell is Odell Beckham? Are we just going to forget and act like the guy didn't play for the New York football giants? Are we going to be that irresponsible to where we're going to say the guy that's second in our franchise in yards, fourth in TDs, and fourth in catches doesn't deserve to be on this list because of some petty back and forth? That's just immature. And quite frankly, the New York Giants are better than that. They've established themselves as a worldwide brand that doesn't need to go to the levels and depths of things like this. This is immature, it's irresponsible, and quite frankly, it's disrespectful. Odell Beckham was one of the best football players to ever lace him up for the New York Giants. He has the fourth most touchdown for any player to catch a pass that wore a New York Giants uniform and he has the fourth most catches ever in New York Giants history. And he played 59 games, the 95th most games by anyone that ever caught a pass for the New York Giants. This guy put up ungodly numbers when he was wearing the blue. You may not like Odell Beckham, the antics, the celebration, his personality, his demeanor, his just aura about him. I get it. People have their reasons. I understand. 
I don't agree, but I understand. But for the Giants to have five receivers on this list before Odell Beckham, for crying out loud, is laughable. The guy in his first season, he played 11 games and had 1,300 yards and 12 touchdowns. He averaged 108 yards per game as a rookie. That's incredible. What more could you have asked for the guy? Sure, things didn't turn out the way we all wanted to, and we wanted him to retire in a Giants uniform. But shit happens. Things go sideways. Relationships crumble. And with whoever that relationship crumbled with, who cares? It's over. We traded him over a year ago. I like the package we got back. I don't agree with the trade, but I've moved on. Just like the Giants need to do. Let go of this little petty beat that they have going back and forth. Odell said some things he shouldn't have said when he first left the Giants, or first got traded by the Giants. He didn't leave the Giants. He said some things he shouldn't have said. He did some interviews he probably shouldn't have done. Answered questions he shouldn't have answered. But how would you feel if after you put up 5,476 receiving yards in 59 games. He almost averaged 100 yards a game. He scored 47 times in 59 games. The guy was one of the most productive receivers in the NFL from the time of 2014 to 2018. The only thing that could slow him down were injuries and a kicking net. Nothing else. The guy was unstoppable. He was the most electric player the Giants have seen play offense for a very long time. He was the first time I ever saw someone on the Giants that if they got the ball at any time, they were a threat to go to the house. The Giants never had that razzle-dazzle. And quite frankly, I don't think the Giants and their old fan base were ready for that. But that's another topic for another day. Right now, I'm just disappointed with what the Giants did. That list that they put out on Twitter where they had Amani Toomer, Sterling Shepard, Hakeem Nix, Plaxico Burris, and Victor Cruz as options to pick from the five receivers, and you didn't have Odell Beckham, it's just immature. It's irresponsible, and it's, quite frankly, I'm ashamed to be a Giants fan when I saw it. And that's no disrespect to the other players. They've all had great careers as New York Giants. And then Odell Beckham came, and although he only stuck around for five years, it was the most productive five-year stretch for any receiver to ever wear an NY on his helmet. So it's time for the Giants to get over it. Don't get into a spiteful war with a player whose feelings were hurt because you traded him. Sure, he wanted his way out. You helped him get his way. But I think he figured out it's something that he didn't want. And quite frankly, it may be something he regrets. But for now, the Giants need to put in the past, be the bigger person, and just do better. So we're actually at like the intermission point of the show. We had a conversation with UNT junior guard Javion Hamlet. I gave you my top five receivers for the 2020 NFL draft, and I gave you my stir of the day. I originally planned for there to be one more topic in that first block, and I was going to talk about the Houston Texans with one of my good friends, Tanner Nels, and we did that. We talked about the Houston Texans, 
just I just want to let you guys know the conversation is a little long, but it's full of great information. I already listened back and I didn't see anything that I could cut out. I think it's full of great information. And if you're a Texan fan, you need to hear every second of it. So if you would like to stick around and hear the interview, I'll play it for you after this intermission. If not, I thank you guys for tuning in to episode two of the Stir the Pop podcast. It really means a lot to me. I have an action-packed episode three already planned out. We'll have an interview with Baltimore Raven Jihad Ward. So that's something to look forward to. But in the meantime, I know a lot of you Houston Texan fans are stressed out and just confused and don't know what's going on. That's why I have Tanner Nels to explain to you guys what Bill O'Brien is doing and if he actually has a plan to all this madness going on. Alrighty, well now we're joined by a good friend of mine. His name is Tanner Nels. He played four years at uh, four years of football at the University of Stony Brook, and he is one of the biggest Texan fans that I know. That being the Houston Texans, and he's extremely knowledgeable and he knows a lot about the intricacies of football. Tanner, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, buddy. Just glad to be talking to you. Just bunkering down during this quarantine and excited to talk a little Texans. As I have thoughts, we are. We are certainly not a boring franchise to follow. Uh, not I at all. I for pain, but we're not boring. Yeah, and honestly, the first thing I got to ask you is, what the hell is going on over there? What is Bill O'Brien doing? So, Bill O'Brien, Bill O'Brien, I'm sorry about that. Bill O'Brien, he is a lot of things. The, the first thing I, I got to give the man credit for is he is an absolute master at consolidating power. That is that is undebatable. 100%. I don't think I've I don't think I've ever seen somebody consolidate power through a a series of almost clandestine cloak and dagger operations on the back end in eliminating anybody anybody that's in his way. So you have a lot of you have a lot of thoughts here in Houston, and then there's also thoughts nationally on what the heck is going on because. To look at the Texans, you got to separate into sort of two thought processes. Bill O'Brien, the coach, and Bill O'Brien, the roster builder. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. You know, so. Which, like you said, as a coach, I mean, you guys have won the division four out of the last five years. Can you really be too upset? That That is the biggest conundrum about the Texans, is the way, if you just pull up Twitter and you listen to the national media, you would think that we are a consistent 5-11, five and, five and 6-10 and 10 football team. You really would. But then you actually look at the, the results and, and the data behind O'Brien, and the bottom line is he does win, and we beat teams we should beat consistently. And even last year, he had some wins that we were the dogs in. You know, games that, that typically in the past the Texans do not win just for a multitude of reasons, they started to win. Now, one could argue, is that O'Brien getting better as a coach, or is that him finally getting lucky and blessed with one Deshaun Watson at the quarterback position? And uh, 
you know, I think it's a little bit of both. Oh, it helps. So there, it, it definitely helps. Uh, O'Brien does a couple things really well from a coaching standpoint. One, his teams always play hard for him. He's a master at navigating his teams through turmoil. I mean, you got to look at the time. You got to look at the time frame of the whole McNair issue just two couple of years back with Dwayne Brown yep. and McNair and the comments that leaked. And what do they do? The next day, pretty much, they fly up to Seattle. You know, they're almost an eight-point dog or something of that nature at that point because people think the team's going to give up. And they go toe-to-toe with a very good Seattle team on Deshaun's rookie year and his second start or third start and, and, and almost pull that out. So he's great at that. He's also great at bringing his opponents into the mud. And that might seem like a skill set that some think is a is a detriment because to bring somebody into the mud implies that you live in the mud. But not a lot of coaches understand how to take a team that you're playing and bring them into your style of game and control tempo and pace. And he's generally pretty good at that. So as the coach, Bill O'Brien has his deficiencies. He's he, he's horrid at clock management in certain situations <laughs> i don't i don't necessarily think he he gets the most out of some talent he has on the roster he is he's a little too emotional and he will he will put players in a doghouse situation like for example kiki kuti who no reason he shouldn't be playing over a deandre carter type he, he has his detriments on that side of the equation you know the the low denominator football fan, Marshall, the first thing they come to is play calling. We got to get the yeah. play calling better. Well, Marshall, you understand this. NFL teams all run relatively the same plays, right? There's not these creative plays that are unique to certain teams. You know, maybe one or two, like McVay with some of the action he was running was unique. And the Andy Reid offense is a little bit different than your traditional NFL offenses. But conceptually, they are all trying to execute the same plays and same attack processes. It's how do you get there and how clean is it done in understanding when to take the shots that to me makes somebody a good play caller versus just calling different plays, attacking downfield constantly. That that doesn't define a good play caller. And, yeah. and O'Brien sometimes in certain games will struggle with understanding when to put his foot on the gas and when to turtle. You know, one unique stat that uh, I think speaks volumes to the mud conversation and him being good at bringing teams into the mud is he's excellent when he has a lead at halftime. Now, I know that's diametrically opposed to the Kansas City Chiefs debacle that occurred <laughs> after week. But, but typically, if the Texans are up at half, they win. And uh, that's t- that's a sign of a good coach yeah. that you don't blow leads. For sure. Um, that's a reflection of your head coach. That's a direct reflection of your head coach. Uh, with that said, I would say if you took a random Gallup poll of the Houston area on Fire O'Brien versus Keep O'Brien, 90% would go with Fire O'Brien currently. And Which is unfair because as a coach, that's not warranted. But so far as he self-catapulted himself into the GM, I think it can be argued that, well, it's... It's warranted from fans to feel that way. It, it is. It, and it's it's the nature of how he's consolidated power that people don't like, one. And then, two, 
a thought process that I think has a little more validity to people wanting to move off, wanting to move off O'Brien are there's there's levels to coaching, right? So if you are five to six years into a franchise and you've shown that you consistently will win games, with that said, you've also shown the propensity to not be able to take the team over the proverbial hump. The thought is, well, maybe that's just what he is, and you'll never get over the hump with this guy. Yeah. And and that's a valid criticism. And patience and time is a is a is a good asset to have as a franchise. With that said, eventually you gotta make a move. And we've seen it work in the past for franchises. Look at Tampa Bay with Dungy to Gruden, where I've changed at the head coach, even though the head coach that they changed off of was successful yielded the desired result of getting over that hump and in the texans case the hump is a super bowl i mean getting to the super bowl they they make the playoffs it's nothing like that it's how do they get to the super bowl and how do they compete there is an underlying thought process here and i think this might be a little overvaluation of talent on the team by the local media that they're one of the more talented teams in the nfl and there's no reason for them not to be one of the best three or four contending teams year to year i i debate that notion with that said i understand that the discontent towards him so like you said a lot of people would look at the texans the past couple years and say they have a pretty talented roster and just a year ago you guys had two people on your roster that if quarterbacks were taken out of the equation would be top 50 players in the nfl and that's deandre hopkins and that's Jadavion Clowney. First, before we even get to the D-hop situation, because I have a lot to say about that, give me your initial thoughts of the Clowney trade and try to make some sense of it for me. Well, my initial thoughts were I was very upset. I am a huge Clowney believer. Yes, he is not a high-end sack producer, but if you actually watch the games with nuance and understand that the goal of a front seven player isn't necessarily just a rack up sats. It's to disrupt the offensive flow and essentially dictate tempo of the offense. Clowney's elite at that. Clowney, Clowney creates more disruption than 98% of players in the front seven. He is one of the best four or five run defenders on, I would consider, uh, a defensive line type spectrum, because that's really what he is, even mm-hmm. if he's a quote-unquote edge. He's really a, he's a front guy. He's a defensive lineman that can bump out and play sort of an outside linebacker in a 3-4, or he put his hand down and rush as a wide, you know, a 7 or a wide 9. But my biggest issue with the Clowney deal is I understand constraints of the salary cap and you, you don't want to pay the man $100 million. I get it. You only have so many funds to go around. Yeah. The, the problem with Clowney, and this is going to overlap to Hopkins, is the value they received, and not because of that value in a vacuum was bad, because the way that they went about unloading the players gave them no chance to get good value. So I think the value received in Clowney was – Terrible. I mean, Terrible. You got a third round pick. You got Mingo, who's not even on the Texans roster anymore. Jacob Martin was part of that deal, and he, he's going to be a nice little contributor for us, but that's somebody you can find in the fourth round as well. So I, I think that the Clowney trade was a one complete, utter miscalculation in how to unload talent at its top. It's like he 
you buy a stock at three hundred dollars and then you sell it at two forty. That's what he did. <laughs> no, I agree. I I was shocked. I to, not only that he was traded, but like you said, the compensation that you guys got back. There's no arguing that Jadavion Clowney is one of the best front interior defensive players in the league. And like you said, he doesn't produce sacks, but his successful pass rush tendency and rate is consistently one of the highest in the league. Consistently. I mean, he when when you watch the games, he he wins. He wins. You know, they were they were the year him and Watt were both healthy. And, and Watt had a good year that year, too. But Clowney had, I think, career-high nine sacks or something of that nature, eight, eight to nine sacks. When you watch the games, they were sliding protection towards Clowney. They, they were making sure to account for Jadavion Clowney even more than the great J.J. Watt, who is still great even post-injury. That goes to show you the, the way teams viewed him. But on the flip side, I say that, and he's still unsigned. And in an era where people are throwing money around left and right, he has not gotten a number that I would have thought he would have received by at least a multiple, you know, number of suitors. Is he being so, greedy? Potentially. Greedy is certainly one thing. And the other thought process is maybe these teams simply don't value him as much as I do. Maybe they, maybe they say, you know, Clowney's good for sure, but we think he's a $15 million a year guy, not a $20 million a year guy, and we don't want to give him $20 million a year on a hard salary cap. Uh, I I think Clowney is absolutely worth, you know, the 18 to $20 million range. When you look at some of the, the peers that are getting paid uh, around that number, I don't see why he's any worse than that. But what really pushed me in the wrong direction with the Clowney trade was – Within that same couple days, you see Frank Clark get traded for an excellent return. And I would argue that Clowney is a better player than Frank Clark in total. Mm-hmm. And they got a one and a two, I want to say, for Clark. At least I know they got a one. And we got, we got, you know, a couple a rotational player and a third-round pick. That's just unacceptable. And you, that the reason that happened is because you let that situation drag on so long for where your hand was forced. You gave Clowney the leverage. You, it was a complete, utter defeat in in the... ...value back. And you made your team worse. You just did. You made the team worse by not having Clowney in the vacuum of that one year. So I, I didn't like the Clowney trade at all. I... You know, I actually was more upset with the Clowney trade than even the Hopkins trade. I can I can see that. But I want to go back to something you just said. You said what made the Clowney trade worse was the package that you saw another team get for a player that you feel like was worse than Clowney. So when you saw the package that the Minnesota Vikings got for Stefan Diggs, Compared to the package that the Houston Texans got for DeAndre Hopkins, what? How do you even? What do you say about that? Another terrible return on the Hopkins trade, and it's terrible for so many reasons. 
I'm baffled by that. I guess if you look at them equally and you take parallels, the return on Hopkins was worse than the return on Clowney, for sure, when you look at Diggs getting that. And, you know, you look at OBJ getting what he got, what he yielded as well. And you look at a guy we just traded for, Brandon Cooks, essentially getting the same return back that we got for DeAndre Hopkins, who is by all by all accounts a far superior player than Brandon Cooks. Uh, Hopkins, the Hopkins trade to me, the Hopkins trade comes down to two things. First and foremost, and this ties in the clowny, O'Brien is a stickler for building the team from a personality standpoint in an image that he deems the best possible way to construct the team. Now, if that's right or wrong, that that's a subjective talking point that me and you could talk to we're, we're blue in the face about, you know, mm-hmm. does certain personality types detriment the team in the long run, even if their talent is elite, you know, maybe, maybe not teams have won both ways doing that. The, the, the problem with the Hopkins trade was you had all the leverage. He had three years left. He had no guaranteed money left. You had complete control over a receiver. That was cost control. That is, unarguably a top five receiver. I mean, on probably the best value contract in the league at receiver. Like you said, he's undoubtedly top five and he's getting paid what? Like 13, 14 a year. Exactly. So the concept of not wanting to pay a receiver $20 million, I'm okay with that. Um, And I'm going to get into this in a second. The concept of constructing a team and an offensive attack in a certain manner. I also see on the positive side, what they're going for. The problem was the return. You got back David Johnson, who in 2016, I would have been dancing. I said, you know, oh, yeah. But DJ, running backs, once they go downhill, they're downhill unless they're Adrian Peterson. And David Johnson's not Adrian Peterson. Agreed. You, know? you got a two-back for him, essentially. And, and that is unacceptable. That If they would have traded Hawk and they got a one and, let's say, a four-back, and people are saying, well, nobody will trade a one for a receiver that needs a new contract. Hogwash. Hogwash. That is, not, that is not true. They know OBJ is going to ask for a new deal soon. When they traded for Cooks initially, the Rams did. Yes, he was still on his rookie contract, but it was his fifth year. It was the last year. A new contract was coming. It was coming. We, so I, I don't buy that narrative. I think that O'Brien is too emotional. It seems spiteful. It seems spiteful almost. It, it is spiteful. It is spiteful for sure. Hopkins falls into that personality type that does not mesh with what O'Brien's looking for, for whatever reason. Uh, and there's a couple thoughts on that. Uh, but he just doesn't fall into that personality type that O'Brien's looking for. And that's really why I'm most torn about the trade in the sense of looking at it and say, okay, did this actually execute a positive return? From a peer roster building construction, I see why you want to move off a receiver that wants $20 million. I do see that. But the, the almost disgust that he must have had with Hopkins to move him that quickly without really doing due diligence, they can say whatever they want. Those are Texans leaks going to Albert Breer. They, you can't tell me that nobody would have dangled at least a late one for Hopkins back. 
And that's just, it, it's, it's mind baffling for me. The, 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 the worst thought I have about this is that O'Brien says, you know what? I don't want the one. I want David Johnson in a two. <laughs> <laughs> Jewel, this trade. That's the scary part. He probably feels like he won the deal. Oh, I, I would think so. I, you know, O'Brien, contrary to popular belief, he's not a dumb guy. You don't. Oh, not at all. You can't be dumb, be the head coach of an NFL team and consolidate power and become one of the only true czars of an NFL team by having full control. That is not a sign of a dummy. Now, it could be a sign of somebody who is extremely power hungry and greedy and bullish and get the hell out of my way if it doesn't fit my narrative. But it's not a sign of a dummy. So I don't think he made this trade thinking that, oh, we're, we're completely getting ripped off here. I think he really thought that this was a good deal for him based on his sort of vision for the team moving forward. So with that said, just the return on value is terrible. You can't validate moving Hopkins and Clowney, who are both all pro-level players, and not receive a single one in return when you see players agree. that are, when you see players that are not their caliber yield back essentially a one and a three or a one and a four. It's it's just it's a complete mismanagement of the assets you have. Yeah, for Brandon Cooks to have been traded, what he's been traded for a first rounder, a first rounder, and a second rounder, and you couldn't get one first rounder out of DeAndre Hopkins and Jadavion Clowney. When I say it out loud, it doesn't even sound right. No, it, it doesn't. I was actually at a bar taking some clients out to lunch when this happened, and we saw the David Johnson trade roll in, and we said, okay, we must be getting like a two in return to take on that terrible contract. So we said, yeah, if we get a two, we get DJ, hope you bounce back. I, you know what? I get it. We have cap space. It's almost like a reverse Brock Osweiler, what we did with the Browns a couple years ago. I get it. That's not a terrible deal. But then I saw... Hopkins is a part of it and I said okay so we must be getting their one maybe next year or maybe another three this year and a one the following year something like that to sweeten the deal up and and no a two and a swap of fours are you kidding me so from everything you just told me we're on the same page give Texans fans some hope or a reason besides personalities not meshing well together why was this deal made, whether it's from a football standpoint or whatever? Okay, I'm going to look at it from a football standpoint first. Here is where I, I don't hate the concept of moving off Hopkins. For as great as he is, and he's on a Hall of Fame-type trajectory, and he, he, he is just a phenomenal football player, an excellent receiver. There's no doubt about that. But that said, when you want to attack defenses – the most effective way to attack defenses, and you can look at the last four or five teams that have won the Super Bowl, and this proves itself in this, is to have multiple attack points on a defense, to distort them both ver- ver- uh, vertically and horizontally, to stress the defenses from multiple points. I think O'Brien looked at the last couple of years and said, you know what? We are too dependent on throwing to Hopkins, and it might be slowing down the growth of Deshaun Watson, one, and then two, not really allowing us to operate at our full potential. Because I'm not saying Hopkins was somebody who was in Watson's ear being a diva. I'm not saying that. 
But when you have a player of his presence, it's natural you're going to look his way at a much higher clip than maybe even you should. Especially as a young quarterback. Especially as a young quarterback. He went to the same college. There's so much connection. And, you know, I got tickets. I have the end zone view. There was a lot of times where the ball snapped and it felt like Watson was completely going away from his, his pre-snap reads, post-snap reads, and he's just going to Hopkins. And, yes, that's going to yield some great catches and some great results, and he'll move the chains. But to really hit maximum potential of Deshaun Watson, you got to have a multiple attack in terms of the skill positions, and the ball's got to be distributed evenly. I, I think what he did is he looked at two of our best offensive games this year. Uh, and it was the first game of the year against the Saints, and then against the Falcons, we went off for like 57. And in those games, Hopkins was not a huge part of the game plan in the sense that he had 11 catches for 130 yards and a touchdown. That wasn't the case. He maybe had a touchdown or two, but it was four catches. The ball was being distributed evenly. They were attacking all, uh, defenses in a multitude of ways. And I think that's O'Brien's thought process, and I don't hate it. I actually think that's how offenses – operate most efficiently there's a reason why no team has won a super bowl with a receiver that's paid in the top two or three in the last five years it hasn't happened well we can thank a 28-3 collapse by the atlanta falcons because of that but i do agree with your point yeah but they still did lose they, I did. they still did lose um uh, you know i i i think that Distribution of targets is crucial to attack defenses, and he was worried about Hopkins commanding so much of the distribution that it wasn't allowing the offense to truly unleash his full potential. And the bottom line is, he has done a good job of giving Deshaun weapons. Like the offense is old, is very talented, so I don't understand this concept that Deshaun Watson wants out because look at what they're doing to him. No. He's got four legitimate quality NFL receivers. He's got two running backs that can do things. I mean, Duke Johnson's a nice player. David Johnson, if he bounces back at all, he's a nice player. I don't know about that. But the weapons are there. And what they've done very well in the last 18 months is they've on the fly, through a lot of assets being traded, have built up what should be a very good young offensive for the next four to five years. Agreed. I wasn't a big fan of the Tunsil deal on paper when I first saw it, just from the standpoint of that's a lot of capital to put into one player who in a year or two wants to be the highest paid offensive tackle. But when you can get your young franchise quarterback, a left tackle that's going to be there for the next 10 years and produce at an all-pro level, you really can't complain that much. No, you can't. And Tunsil, so another misconception some folks have is, you know, talking about console and you know what they trade him why they trade him he's not even you know a, a, a high high-end caliber guy he's a good young tackle well after watching every snap he played this year laramie tunzel is already one of the best four or five tackles oh he's a beast he's a beast it's only getting better that guy's got three or four all pros coming up in the next six years i didn't hate that trade that was another trade that they had to make through roster mismanagement and not developing any good tackles so a lot of issues compounded and led to what in a vacuum looked like a, a, a reach on value. 
with that said, he had to do that. You couldn't trot Matt Khalil out there. Watson would have died last year if he tried to knock him out. And I am, I am not necessarily extremely opposed to trading draft picks for absolute proven young talent. Uh, I mean, I know cost control is huge in the NFL, but you could draft five tackles in a row for the next five years, and there's a pretty high chance none of them are as good as Larry Tunsil, and you're just constantly spinning your wheels. It seems like that's a new trend almost, where teams will trade high picks for proven players. Yeah, absolutely. You know, now, one could say, is that a trend because in the last four or five years, We've seen, outside of Houston, pressure on coaches to produce in a two- to three-year window. They have to produce. So in their mind, they're going to go – and the GMs as well. So in their mind, they're saying, look, we'll credit card this. We'll, we'll, we'll kick yeah. off the repercussions for the future. But we want to go win now and secure top-end top talent now instead of taking a, a, a lottery on a first-round pick. Because even though first-round picks typically will be – Decent NFL players, it's still it's still a crapshoot, man. Oh, when you yeah. go to a list of first rounders that absolutely flail out. And if you invest a, the twelfth overall pick in a left tackle and you plant him at the starter day one, because that's what you're gonna do with the twelfth overall pick, and he does not turn out to be a quality player in the NFL, you put yourself in a hole. Left tackle, quarterback, there's maybe one or two other positions that if you really place somebody as that man, you allocate a high high draft capital pick to and he doesn't work it sets you back a little bit 100%. so I, I get the Tunzel trade and the stills throwing wasn't a bad deal i'm not as mad about the Tunzel trade as i am about i think that's a good deal for y'all it's turned out at least in the short term to shown that o'brien hit on that one yeah i would say so uh, i would think in that year the, the the trade to me that was worse than the Tunzel trade was trading a three for duke johnson i like duke He's a quality player, but they don't utilize him right. You could have got somebody in the third round. Running backs in the third round are studs <laughs> the way they've been devalued. I mean, heck, you might have J.K. Dobbins last in the third round this year. You know, so you you don't you don't trade a third round for a running back unless you're going to make that guy a preeminent part of your attack. And Duke was nice, but he was just a small piece of the attack this year. Um, with that said, Marshall. To win football games, I evaluate three positions or three sort of units on every team to determine who I think has the advantage in today's NFL. One, the ability to protect the quarterback. I think the Texans, and I'm I'm hard set on this, is that they'll be a top 10 to 12 unit up front this year on the offensive side of the ball. Tunzel's a stud. Uh, Max Sharping's going to be a good 7 to 10 year guard. Nick Martin's a quality center. They're a little weak at right guard with Fulton, but he's serviceable. And then Titus Howard. I think is going to be a quality, quality. I like him. So they've done a good job on that. The quarterback position, you got a guy who's a fringe top five quarterback who's only going to continue, continually get better. He has his flaws. Watson still struggles to see um, exotic coverages, as all young quarterbacks do. Uh, but he's getting better. So you, you have offensive line quarterback combo. You're, you're top five, top six in the league. And the third component in which I really worry about the Texans this year. And I think this is the part that they are going to struggle the most with because they struggled mightily this year we just played, What is the ability to heat up the pocket. I'm not talking about getting sacks, just heating up the pocket. I like that word. That's the quarterback. 
we are in a bad spot with that. Um, they paid Whitney Merciless a number that they had no business paying Whitney Merciless. Yeah, I didn't like that deal. No, you are so dependent upon JJ maintaining health throughout the entire year. And when he's healthy, do not fall into the narrative that JJ is not JJ still. When he's healthy, he is still dominant. This year before he got hurt, granted the sack numbers weren't crazy, he was dominant. They could not block him. But you can't you can't base your entire thought process on attacking the quarterback and predicate that on JJ staying healthy when unfortunately the last three or four years shows that that's probably unlikely he's going to play all 16. Yeah. I agree. I think JJ is still one of the best in the game and he's playing still at a high level. One one move that I was a, I don't know I don't know how I'd say it but what was the reason for letting DJ Reader go? Was the number just too high or what? I thought he was a good player for y'all. You know that 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 one is interesting because Reader fits what o- O'Brien likes from a team perspective. The character, you know, the do the right thing guy, the fall in line. He fits all of that. He was a homegrown player. He was a very, very good player. I mean, Reader is a, another high-end interior defensive player. I mean, the guy is dominant against the run, and this year he showed some good signs of being able to build some pass rush uh, moves into his repertoire where he was able to, you know, heat up the pocket pretty consistently for the first six games, and that sort of fell off. I think what came down with that was that number just didn't fit the construct of what they were trying to do. Uh, from a team building perspective, because they know Tunzel's going to get twenty, yeah. and they know Watson's going to get thirty-five or forty. Exactly. So letting Reader walk, as much as I love DJ Reader, I, I, I don't chastise them for having an internal value system and saying, "Yeah, we love Reader, but is he worth thirty-three million guaranteed for the next two years?" I don't know, and I, I don't know if that's the right or wrong answer. Great player, I think him and. Gino on that front of Cincinnati is going to be a problem, but uh, I think they'll be okay. And another reason I think they moved off Reader is the Texans have two excellent inside linebackers in terms of stopping the run game and Zach Cunningham and Bernard McKinley. And they figure that, you know, you can just plug and play a average league starter on the inside. All out Timmy Jernigan, if he's healthy and your run defense will be just fine. And you really weren't getting that much disruption in the past game from Reader outside the first four or five, you know, six games. Uh, so I, I, I get that. I get that a little bit. Makes sense. Like you said, you've got two big contracts coming up between your left tackle and your quarterback. You so, do. You've got two big contracts. What I think the Texans made a mistake here is you look across this – is, this is sort of an overlapping thing. When, when you evaluate the Texans in O'Brien – Everyone's valuing in a vacuum now, which makes things look, you know, very interesting. But the reason that I am sour on his thought process as a GM is he's had control of player personnel the last three years. I don't care what anybody says. Since Rick Smith's been out of there, it's been O'Brien's show. And even the last year of Rick Smith, it was really O'Brien. He was starting to win that power struggle. Every other team in the NFL that has an elite or borderline elite quarterback on a rookie contract dumps money and pushes it and tries to win and says, you know what, we're going to go two or three years and load up across the board until our quarterback needs to get paid, and then we'll reshuffle. Sort of like what, um, you know, sort of like how the whole Seattle situation played out. 
And the Texans didn't do that. They sort of stayed status quo, didn't didn't address anything they needed to address when they had a very cheap, high-end quarterback on the roster. They just kept on sort of doing what they were doing. And then they woke up one day and they said, wow, we have some roster deficiencies and we don't really have time to fix this now because Sean's coming up on a contract. The only thing we have is draft picks and a couple assets on our team that we think are not necessarily crucial to win the title. So we're just going to trade on the low. We're going to we're going to liquidate all of our assets. We're going to fire sell everything we can to try to put together the best, you know, smorgasbord of of talent at the positions we're really hurting at that we possibly can. You know, you look at the, the, the Conley trade this year for a third rounder. That was a trade out of desperation. There's no reason why you should trade that guy for a third rounder. So I agree. That, that, that's not something that uh, is, has happened overnight. That's a, that's a three-year complete misplay in roster construction. With all that said, they've been winning games. So that's why the Texans are a conundrum, because they win games, and guess what? I still think they win the division this year because they have the best quarterback. They have a good offensive line, and they still have good weapons. They, they, they do, and O'Brien has shown that he is going to win the games he should win. Yeah, you can't argue that. The thing I, I liked that you said was when you talked about how the Texans necessarily didn't go all in when they knew that they had a great quarterback in Deshaun Watson on his low-cost low rookie deal. But... A team that has shown that that plan is extremely backfired is the, is, is the Los Angeles Rams. They're in a place right now where they win all in with Jared Goff, and they're having to, they're having to disarm that team. And I just think that it's extremely risky to push all your chips to the table. Well, let me ask you this, Marshall. Defining success in the NFL, nothing is guaranteed. I mean, you look at the Carolina Panthers just four years ago, they were in the Super Bowl and they went 14 and 2, and now it's a completely different roster. So I think you have to evaluate the NFL roster sometimes in a three to four year window. Was it a failure? They made the Super Bowl. I don't know if you would necessarily call that a failure. They made the Super Bowl. They're, they're dealing with it now. Um, another point to that is making sure that you're hitching your, your, your horse to the right wagon, I, I guess with the that. term, is key. Goff is not that guy. Goff needs an elite structure around him to succeed. I mean, he's a quality, manageable, starting quarterback, you know, average quarterback in the NFL that needs a robust roster around him to succeed. And I think that's why you're seeing this, whereas a guy with Watson, you could have pushed it all in while he was still young. But by year four or five is what we're coming up on. Watson, in my opinion, has the ability to succeed with maybe lesser parts around him due to the ability of him being able to break the pocket and improvising and just sort of getting things done. So if you're running a true pro-style guy that's not really as good as he may look with um, you know, extreme talent around him in his first couple of years, I, I think your statement is correct. But these are two different scenarios, in my opinion. Agreed. Agreed. I 100% agree. So yep. I'm trying. I'm looking at this graphic right now. What what picks do you guys have this this draft? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we have uh, the 40th pick in the uh, in the second round, so we have the 40th. So you got you know, a two. We, we got a two, and we traded away the 57 in the Cooks trade, which yeah, I don't think you could have. You could. I feel like you could have got that guy for a three at 
at, you know, worst, maybe a four. So I think the two was a little aggressive to get Brandon Cooks with. I mean, I just don't, I don't think that was a good value on that. But then you got a three, a four. You got your rest of, you have the rest of the, uh, you have the rest of the um, the draft lined up, and I want to say they have two fours as well. So they have draft capital outside of the one this year, and I get the one is the one everybody talks about, but if you look across NFL rosters, there's a lot of players that are not drafted in the first round that are very high-end players. Like, you don't have to have a first-rounder to have a good draft. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that, especially at certain positions. I mean, you, you look at the... You look at the receiver position, you know, I'm not a huge PFF guy, but their top three ranked receivers from this last year were all drafted outside of the the first round. So you don't necessarily need high picks for certain certain positions. You know, you do. I I think, you know, you're going to draft a a tackle or a real stud edge rusher. Typically, you're going to have a better hit rate early on Um, or a cornerback. You typically, especially corner, you're going to have a better hit rate early on. But you can construct the roster without having a one. And if you are trading a one for a surefire contributor, it, it, it makes sense. Um, they need to address the ability to heat up the pocket. If they don't use their first three picks that they have on the defensive side of the ball, I get best player available. I understand that. But sometimes that just can't be your, your philosophy. I agree. They have to, even if it's a reach, they have to draft somebody at that 40 that's either uh, a coverage guy on the outside at the cornerback position or somebody in the front, you know, in the front four or five that can heat up the quarterback, preferably from the interior. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, with the draft capital you guys have, what are areas that you think need to be addressed? Like you said, I you, you need to heat up the pocket more. Do you think y'all, y'all need a little more depth or at the DB at the DB spot or what? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in, in some combination or the other, I think your two and your three in some some combination have to be somebody on the front, preferably again, interior, you know, somebody that can maybe play that, a base four and first and second down and then even bump in a little bit, maybe over the center or, you know, play on that outside shade of the guard and more of a three tech on third down that can provide consistent pressure. Uh, and then you need another good quality young guy to throw into the cornerback pool. They did resign Roby, and Roby's a good player. He Roby's is good. a quality player, and they got him on a good contract. Then you drafted Lonnie Johnson last year in the second round. He's very raw, got all the traits and tools to be a quality player in the NFL. He's very raw, and it was evident last year he could get turned around pretty easily. He's just a raw guy that he could develop. But then outside of that, I mean, Darian Conley's okay. You know, he's serviceable to throw in there, you know, for 25, 30 snaps a game. But I would love for them to, to add a, a young, talented player on, on that outside. Uh, but to me, more important than that is addressing the pass rush. I think fixing the rush is an easier, quick fix in the NFL than building out a dominant back end. I agree. So Tanner, let me let me get let me let me put you in this position. You're speaking to all Texan fans right now. The overall feeling, I think we both can agree right now, is just confusion. They don't know what's going on. So in about 30 seconds to a minute, tell them something that, that that's going to ease their pain right now. Okay, it's pretty simple. Uh, for the first time since 2014, 
you have a above average NFL offensive line that should considerably get better. And if you control the front in football on the offensive line side, you are going to have a quality offense, especially if you have a, a trigger man who can play. Deshaun can play. You also probably have the most speed in the NFL outside of the Chiefs at receiver, and you might even be faster in the Chiefs now at the receiver position. So if health depending, because obviously Fuller gets hurt and Cooks, you know, it's had concussion issues, you are a scary matchup in terms of distorting defenses. I mean, you, the, the, the uh, underneath game should be wide open for the Texans because there's nobody in the league that's not going to sit back too high against them with Fuller and Cooks. So offensively, I actually think there's a chance for them to be better than they were last year, even though Hopkins is gone. Everyone's looking at that because you're going to be able to attack teams from multiple angles. So, And Deshaun's going to get better, and you have a quality O-line that's going to consistently get better and can finally move people and play at a high clip. I think defensively they could be in trouble. I just think that they are fangless in rushing the passer if Watt is not playing at a superhuman level. They're really banking on the development of the talent they have on the defensive side of all up front. The problem is, is that talent might develop into you know decent players, but it's not high end talent. You know they're banking on a Minihue and Duke Edge of Four and Jacob Martin taking the next step and being quality starters in this NFL. And that may happen for one of them, but those are not blue chip guys where the jump from you know rotational player to top. 20% of their position starter can occur, in my opinion. So I think they're in trouble on the defensive side of the ball. So you just got to hope that Anthony Weaver comes from that Rex Ryan school and can draw up some exotic blitzes and teams don't catch it too quickly. And you can at least not get bludgeoned over the head consistently on the defensive side of the ball. And that gives Deshaun and them boys a, a decent chance to outscore teams. And at the end of the day, you got number four back there. That's really what it comes down to. You got four. I mean, you got four. You know, people, you know, Marshall, people like to say wins are a useless quarterback stat. I absolutely hogwash that. You go look at the NFL over the last 10 years. Why is it that only a handful of quarterbacks make the Super Bowl? Why are the same quarterbacks in the playoffs every year? And, you know, the, the, the people will counter that. will say, well, it's two organizations they're in. Well, are the organizations they're in the organizations they're in because of how efficient they're ran? Or are they the organizations they are because they have the trigger man? And that makes everything easier. Once you have the quarterback, you can take some some risks and you can make mistakes because that cue is going to – he's going to cover up a lot of errors and mistakes. I mean, look at Russell Wilson up in Seattle. Have they done a fantastic job constructing a – no. offensive infrastructure around him no. no their offensive line's been marginal at best they have some quality pieces on the outside you know Lockett's a good player they got Metcalf and you know they, they got some quality pieces but by no means would you consider that a a treasure trove of offensive talent to go with Russell so if you have the quarterback things typically just work easier and you got the quarterback you got the offensive line and you still have weapons I think the only chance the Texans have to take the step, the proverbial step this year, is for the distribution of the ball to to come into fruition and O'Brien's thought process somehow pans out in the sense that we're going to attack defenses from so many different ways and the ball's going to fly around with ease almost like it's almost like taking a 
a dominant shooting guard out of a out of an offense, and then letting just a true point guard throw the ball around however he wants it, and just easier buckets are made. You know. Yeah, I like that comparison. Well, Tanner, I appreciate you coming on, man. That was good stuff. That was a lot of good stuff that you delivered right there. Yeah, man, no problem. I appreciate you having me on, Marshall. I love the podcast, buddy. And, uh, you know, good luck, very much so. And uh, Eli, I'll give him the nod to the Hall of Fame. I'll give him the nod about the fourth time. Yeah, not the first time, maybe not the fifth time, but at the end of the day, he's got to get in there. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Like you said, the story. But I, I appreciate you having me on, Marshall. Thanks. No problem, Tanner. I'm sure you'll be on again to talk Texans. Tell the fam I said what's up, and y'all be safe out there. Will do. Likewise to yours, brother. All righty. That was Tanner Nels talking to Texans.